0: You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by FitzDares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings.
1: Hi, welcome to Nick Luck Daily. It's Thursday, the 14th of July. This weekend the feature race is the Weatherby's Super Sprint. We'll be talking to Nick Craven from Weatherby's about that a little bit later on in the show. We will be touching on on the whip, of course. It's the the big story this week. My guest is uh, Jonathan Harding of the Racing Post. He'll give his view on that. But we do start with the news that Desert Crown is by no means a certain runner in next weekend's King George. He did head the market. Um, now we're out about joint favourite with Westover, the Irish Derby winner. Jonathan Harding, what's the state of play as we know it? Well,
2: the, the news filtered through sort of yesterday evening that Coral had suspended their betting on the race um, and it's emerged that Desert Crown suffered a very minor setback uh, in his foot and will not work this morning. That was sort of highlighted as a key piece of work by Sir Michael Stout ahead of the big race. So he's, he's not worked this morning. There's not an enormous... Cause for concern coming out of the camp, although we never really know. Um, it was good of his connections to spell out and let people know for the sake of punters, but it certainly blows a big hole in, in what was looking like a, a hell of a competitive race if he doesn't line up.
1: It, it was looking like a, a very very interesting race, top of the market between the the, the Derby third and um, Irish Derby winner and, and, and the Derby winner himself. Um, P- prior to that, I mean, did you have a view on the race? Did you, did you feel that, that Desert Crown was a good thing, if you like, and, and this sort of blows that out of the water now? Or, or did you think it was a bit more open
2: than that? Well, being wholly unoriginal, I thought Desert Crown should or was going to win and might still. Um, I, he was so impressive at Epsom. I think the form with Westover win has just had a wonderful boost with Westover winning the Irish Derby. I take the argument that Westover might have finished closer in the Derby um, had he had a clearer run, but I'm not sure he would have got as close to the winner as people think. I think he was a very good winner of the Derby Desert Crown and would be a serious, seriously warm order for the King George if he does line up, which is still the plan, let's not forget. Um, Away from the sort of big two, I was looking at Mishriv looked very interesting, obviously ran fantastically well behind Verdini in the Coral Eclipse, he's always there or thereabouts in these races, it's chased him Adair in this last year, so he'll probably be on the premises as well. But it'll be I'm very interested in how Westover runs with a view to the ledger later in the season, of course Eldar Eldarov is running this evening in the Grand Prix de Paris, he looks like a serious ledger horse as well, so... I'm hoping things go well for Westover and we can see that match up later in the season as well.
1: So with that in mind, just just on Westover, and, and as I understand it, no um, decision has been made with regards to who rides Westover just as yet, or or at least we haven't been told whether or not a decision has been made. I did check in with that yesterday, um, and perhaps I'll come back to that. But with Westover, were you impressed with his performance in Ireland because I, like you, thought off the back of the derby, thought, well, St. Ledger, because there was still a point where perhaps he was just done for a little bit of pace, certainly by a horse like Desert Crown, um, but before running on again. What did you take away from, from his run in the Irish derby with regards to, to his distance? Do you, do you still see him out and out as a, as a horse that can be at his very best in the St. Ledger, or is he a bit quicker than that?
2: I think he's one of those, and and every yard would love to have one, one of those versatile horses who's got the, I think has the class to compete and mix it at the top level over a mile and a half. But his running style and the way he travels into his races suggests to me that he'd have no problem stepping up. Whether that's his best trip, there's only really one way to find out and that's stepping him up for the, for the ledger or, or perhaps a prep race beforehand but he stayed on really well in the irish derby and it, it just went further and further clear which suggests to me the way he hit the line that he he could be seen to best effect long striding in a in a saint ledger or, or a race of that nature
1: just on i, I mentioned rob hornby it, it, would it be fair to assume that for for the arguments for colin keen riding the horse in in ireland being that he knew the currar that bit better than Rob Hornby. Well, coming back to Ascot, with Rob Hornby off the back of a Group 1 double the weekend just gone, he probably know Ascot a little bit better. Would you expect him to be back on board, Westover?
3: I, th-
2: I certainly would, yeah. I would expect him to be back on. The, the argument was that Colin Keane knew the Curragh better, which is absolutely true, and, and we saw that. It was a, a pretty textbook, simplistic ride, got it, got it done in the Irish Derby. But you've got to think with... Not only Hornby's knowledge of Ascot, knowledge of the horse, having ridden him so many times in Britain and the form he's in, it would be, I'd be very surprised if he was jocked off.
1: We shall see. Right, the whip. Your your personal opinion, Jonathan, if you can, first of all, because... I'm not, you know, nothing has nothing has changed since we spoke about the the, the whip and the, the last couple of days. A few people have been very outspoken. Um, a few interesting interviews on the the Racing Post, the the publication you work for. But but you personally, Jonathan Harding, thinks what about these new whip rules?
2: Well, you, you touched on it there about the reaction. We've had reaction from both extremes, which just points to how complex a topic this is. So I think it's okay to sort of take a balanced opinion, and my view is that. A sort of reasonable balance has been struck here by the BHA. I understand the fear that giving an inch on things such as the whip may lead to sort of vocal opponents of the sport taking a mile. I understand that fear, that anxiety. But for me, perception is very important. We can't simply dismiss it as, well, they'll think what they think and we give too much too much attention to worrying about what other people think. I think that's quite a short-sighted way of looking at it. It is important what people think, how people perceive things, whether we accept that or not is another matter. But the people's approach to or people's view of animals and certainly animals in sport is changing. Society is changing and racing has done well here, I believe, in taking action on its own terms rather than being forced to take action. Down the line, I mean, as it stood, we had a rule that failed to act as a proper deterrent. So I think the implementation of disqualification, though people don't really like that D word, a little bit afraid of it, is certainly going to act as a deterrent. There is an argument that it didn't go far enough, but I think in principle, it's it's a good idea to have a serious punishment for what is essentially uh, sort of preventing it being a level playing field. If you strike over the limit, you are Playing outside the rules, giving yourself a competitive advantage, and therefore the punishment should fit that crime. I I see an awful lot of people suggesting that, well, it's the trainers and the owners and the breeders that are punished if a horse is disqualified. But I would argue, and, and this is something I've seen a few years ago, Charlie Fellows raised actually, is that trainers, owners, and breeders are punished now. If you're on the second and you're beaten by a horse where the jockey exceeds the whip rule or the number of strikes, sorry, and your jockey hasn't then you're being punished essentially for what they've done and they'll take the ban and keep the race so i think it's uh, it will certainly work as a deterrent and i think while there's going to be an adjustment phase um i'm hoping that rule doesn't have to be used too often and, and the jockeys seem to have sort of got behind it and it's one of those where it has to be done right now the bha's been decisive there's a lot of work's gone into it they've drawn a very clear line in the sand and said, this is our position, this is what we're being act proactive on this topic. And if it's done right, then hopefully that will be enough. But if it's done wrong and not taken in the right spirit, then the fear would be that, that more changes would be sort of piled on or, or the sport would be pressured to make more changes down the line.
1: I think, um, yes, I think it, it's also it's important to remember um, who the steering group was made up of and it was a long 18 month process with uh, a steering group made up of people um, from different backgrounds, different roles in the sport and outside and different age ranges as well. And with what they were tasked to do, I think um, they've done a pretty good job. Uh, The other um, thing you mentioned that the jockeys seem to be pretty happy with it. I I think the coming weeks and months are going to be interesting. The, The PGA put out a, uh, a, a statement which was largely in support of the the new rules now whether that is a, a, a well it's not a representation of what everyone in the weighing room thinks because you know we, we've seen what neil Callan's had to say we know what a few other people have had to say um i think some jockeys will want to push back on this uh brandon shea the chief regulatory officer at the bha confirmed on the pod yesterday that look, the, the 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 20 um suggestions for but before the BHA have all been approved, so there's going to be no changing there. But the 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 finer details, um, I think, will be interesting, uh, particularly as we we get into the the bedding in period. Jonathan,
2: no, you're absolutely right. And and to say the jockeys seem okay with it is more a case of the sort of the elder statesmen that have come out and represented jockeys incorporated as it were have given the view that yeah we're willing to knuckle down get on with the other sports bringing rule changes and and jockeys will um will just get on with it because i believe that they take their responsibility seriously in terms of the perception of the sport and they're, they're willing to make those small changes and adjustments if it is to the greater benefit i i do think they are feasible adjustments but like you say there will be a a bedding in period where people might have to slightly change their style and they might be a little bit resentful about that and there will be people in that weighing room just like there are people in the industry who feel that actually no we shouldn't have changed anything and the current rules were fine that's okay but as I say generally that the jockeys have been presenting united front under the pga and it'll be interesting to see how it how it develops as it beds in because it's a it is a little bit of a cultural change for them
1: Right. You, the last time you were on the podcast, you were off on a, a trip to the Polish border. You're, you're back. You've written about it on the uh, racing post. You, you've spoken about it. Um, what was it like, Jonathan?
2: Yeah, it was a bit of an eye opener, to be honest with you, Tom. Um, I went out there with Gay Calloway and a group of volunteers, um, other people involved in racing as well. And we were delivering what I believe we're delivering a lot of equine and animal aid to a rescue center near Shezhov run by a a wonderful woman called Charlie Thornycroft, who's been leading the sort of aid efforts out there for animals and indeed people. But it it transpired that we're also taking humanitarian aid. So it was a mixed trip in that sense. So I was able to deliver supplies to a refugee center in Prish and see a little bit of the area and it was it was pretty harrowing to be honest with you but there was a wonderful good news element at the end in that we were able to bring back four ukrainian refugees with us rather than come back with empty seats through a charity called love bristol so it was an eye-opening trip it was a difficult trip very tiring but in the end it was it was a fantastic experience and it was great to get back and see people Donating to Gay Kelloway's Just Giving page, which essentially funds the delivery of those animal supplies, also the humanitarian and, and the whole trip bringing people back. So it was good to see the racing community get together as they often do when when it's required with these big picture things and really get behind it and get behind that important work that Charlie Thornycroft is doing out in Eastern Poland. Mm.
1: What was it like when you when you arrived home? For you, were you were you um, on a humanitarian and um, not just equine, but animal level as well, and, and, and got back to these shores, to, to to your home comforts, what dawned on you as you, you got back home?
2: Well, firstly, that I really needed to sleep, because we'd travelled a very long way with very limited sleep. Um, what dawned on me, I think just, I think with anyone who is able to see these things or, get any form of perspective on what's going on over there just the, the things that we worry about over here are just so so trivial when you think about adults families elderly people living out of suitcases on cabin beds in, in an old supermarket in, in a country let alone a town that they don't know I mean it's just you can't imagine it really you can't they're people just like us incredibly of course very westernized there's you wouldn't there's nothing to split them and us culturally really and to see them by a quirk of living so close to an aggressive nation um, having to pack their lives into suitcases and leave is just yeah it's difficult very difficult
1: this weekend it is the great racing welfare cycle which is a, a mammoth challenge we, we touched on it a, a good bit on the, the podcast this time last year uh, one of the people that took part last year was amy wrighton who's back with me now uh, amy is a, a welfare manager in the east for racing welfare and you are mad enough to go again amy well done I know. I can't
4: actually believe it myself, and and on potentially one of the hottest weekends of the year as well, it'll be a
1: challenge. Oh yeah, that that too. <laughs> um, what what was it like last year, Amy?
4: So last year, I'd say I'm, I'm quite a competent cyclist, and and I do a lot of training. Um, however, those five days, five hundred miles was probably the biggest challenge I've ever done on anything um, in my life. So it was quite a challenge. Mm. So I'm not
3: anticipating this will be any
4: small feat either.
1: Um no, I, I I can imagine it won't. Where sort of day to day was it was it a case of rest as much as you can, try and put the, the pain out of your mind and just get back on board the bike the next day? Yeah, it was. Um and it was kind of get through the miles, then have a rest and then
4: get going again, whereas this is obviously gonna be twenty four hours of just continual cycling pretty much. So mm. it's um yeah, gonna be a challenge.
1: That Okay, so just spell out exactly what's in front of you this weekend. So um, it's a 24-hour challenge and we are taking on a 30-kilometre route which we ride for 24 hours in teams of four
4: um, around Cheltenham um, with one of the hills being the side of Cleve Hill. So anyone that knows Cheltenham and, and obviously been to the amazing festival, you've got that lovely backdrop of Cleve Hill, we'll be going up and down the side of that and around a route around there. So um, nice views, but I think that we won't be taking much of those in.
1: So, so so so. so. So watch starts, and it stops 24 hours later, and between you, you have to cycle continuously.
4: Yeah, pretty much as many loops as we can do, and I know that we've got some very competitive other riders doing it, so um, I think there'll
1: be um, some, some amazing challenges and the results put, put out for it. Um, last year, one thing I was struck by was that it felt like a real team effort, a racing welfare team, and, and you know everyone that took part really got on board that it was for a, an excellent cause. Um and, and that that looks like it's going to be embodied again this year yeah for sure so it's one of our flagship fundraising events um, we're we want we're looking to raise around 60,000 doing it so we're really sort of pushing as hard as we
4: can and as I say we've got some amazing support um, we've got nearly 90 riders doing it in teams of four um, and some really competitive people on there as well um, and some, some great names that are, in, are supporting us
1: and if people want to, to donate what, do they need to, to find the individuals or can they go to Racing Welfare as a whole and donate there so you could do both of those things and at racing welfare we've actually got an amazing auction um so we've, we're lucky that we've got um ap
4: mccoy's riding with one of the teams he's um donated a golf and breakfast with himself we've got some uh, tour of Hall studs, so mm. that's a great way to get involved and also
1: they can sponsor us that way too okay great it Is the easiest way to to is are all the details for that on the the racing welfare website on the website yeah racing welfare.co.uk okay I, I i wish you all the very best um as i say it's it's for a, a fabulous cause try and in, enjoy most of it i think <laughs> lots of sun cream. yes um amy thanks ever so much for joining me and good luck thank
4: you thanks very
1: much so while the great racing welfare cycle is the cycle of the weekend the race of the weekend is the weatherby's super sprint and I'm pleased to say that executive director of weatherby's nick craven joins me now nick welcome along um so, so the, this sponsorship has been going how long now, Nick?
4: Well, the race was first run Tom in nineteen ninety one, um, and then we became involved as sponsors in nineteen ninety three. So it's a, it's a good stretch. I'm not quite sure where it
1: sits in terms of longevity of sponsor, but uh, I think we'll, we'll be up there with most. Oh, um, c- certainly, I mean, it, yes, it, it's um, that in the current day and age. I think that's pretty good going since the early nineties. Just, just for anyone that isn't um up to speed with what is special about this race given the you know given how much horses cost these days, particularly young speedy juveniles. Um w- what is significant about this race? Well it's really going back to ninety one when the race was first run, it was a brainchild of the then Lord Carnarvon, um who was chairman of Newbury at the time. Um and his idea was to have a race that encouraged or or really supported and rewarded the, the less expensive horses. So the race conditions really
4: um, weight a horse according to what it cost a public auction. Um, and I think in those days when it was first run, I think the maximum cost of a horse was around the £40,000 mark. Um, it's now £63,000. Um, so it's it's it, and basically the weight comes down according to the... Um, according to the, the cost of the horse below that, so obviously the top price would be, uh, the highest-weighted horse would be, the horse and large, obviously allowing like the Colts and Phillies allowances, um, would, would be the top-priced horse. Um, and the horse that costs the least would be the, the, the
1: lowest-priced horse. So it's, it's quite a nice way of, I guess, giving the, the, the lowest price horses a, a good chance of the, of the day at the sun, really. And what it means is, I mean, you've got a horse this year like Rogue Spirit for example who just about heads the betting who was picked up for 11,000 guineas I mean you know and, and you, you know, now that horse is com- competing for a chance to win a huge pot
4: yeah exactly yeah so Rogue Spirit so Billy Jackson Stops and Tom Clove the trainer Rogue Spirit 11,000 tax December sale um, obviously the horse has been going incredibly well um, and obviously a big, big chance on, on Saturday and I know Tom has been quoted as saying that he's always like the look of the um, the super sprint and comes second months already as well. I think after romance a couple of years ago. Um, so you know, trainers like Tom, if they find the right horse, will we'll target races. Um, you know, particularly the super sprint.
1: Um, and what we, what I tend to, to find that you know, you'll, you'll look at the the, the sprinters at, at Royal Ascot, sprinters that may have won their race at Royal Ascot or, or been placed. This seems a sort of natural progression for them to to come on time-wise it seems to work pretty well and it's happened a few times in the past ASCA performers have come on and, and, and contested this and sometimes won it Yes, it, it, is, it is often a, a
4: stepping stone um, I mean, funnily enough you often find races uh, I don't know, Windsor and Leicester as, as well that have, have sort of um, have made a mark in terms of producing horses going on to, to run well or win the super sprint but, you know, going back even from the start when Paris House was the first winner for, for Jack Berry all those years ago um, he had been second in the rules for um, Magic Ring, if everyone remembers that. And then Lyric Fantasy, obviously, whoever knows, was that a complete superstar, the Pocket Rocket. Um, she had won the Queen Mary. Whiskey won it the following year, the first year we sponsored it. Um, and then Flanders, Tim's, Tim, a really good fellow called Flanders, who's, who was an outstanding brood as well, and still going as far as I um, She had won the Windsor Castle in '98. Um, Superstar Leo um, who William William Haggis um, trained again and no really good winner of the race won the Norfolk on the way there so Ascot does tend to have sort of um, had, a, had a say in how horses have gone on to perform in the super sprint I, I, won't,
1: I won't ever forget Tiggy Wiggy because as far as I was concerned she, she couldn't be beaten in the Queen Mary and Julie was and then I had this stupid idea that she couldn't carry top weight in the super sprint and and, and she went and absolutely bolted up by six lengths. So there you go. And you know she's part of the the, the Hannon history of the race. Both both senior and junior have a. I mean they they, they send out a lot of ammunition.
4: Yes, no, incredible. And, I, and I guess it's it's sort of testament to the fact that Richard Senior obviously um, when the, when the race was being devised, as I said, by by Lord Carnarvon back in the nineties, um, Lyric Fantasy was trained by by Richard. Um, Appropriately, and he went on to put a real stamp on the race. I think I think um, Helen Senior has trained seven winners, and and his son Junior has trained four winners. Um, so through the last four years as well, so they really have made a mark on the race.
1: Yeah, and um, I'm hoping we're going to um, feature Richard Hand on the, the the pod tomorrow um, with regards to I think he's intended five runners. So hopefully more on that tomorrow, Nick. This is the the sort of feature sponsorship of yours. Of, of how many other sponsorships do you have? Um, Tom will sponsor around 100 races each year. Um, it perhaps is a flagship, I think Cheltenham might say that it's um, dead heating for, for flagship alongside the champion bumper. Um, yes, I, 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 was in, I was in flat mode, Dick. I'm, it's for some. <laughs> Quite right, yeah. I mean, the races like the Cheshire Oaks, the Lonsdale Cup. Um, there are plenty of other good races
4: to be sponsored in the portfolio. It's, um, it's important for us. We want to be seen as, as supporting the industry in a big way, and I think, that, I think the sponsorship portfolio is a good way of doing that. We're at Cartmel on Monday as well, so, so everywhere we get to.
1: Yeah, enjoy your sticky toffee pudding. Nick, thanks ever so much. My pleasure, Tom. Well, Nick's technically on holiday, but we, we all know he doesn't actually rest. And a couple of pieces from him now. Uh, we start with Bahraini-based owners, KHK Racing.
0: Well, this month's Great British Racing International, international owner in focus in association with thoroughbred owner and breeder is His Highness Sheikh Khalid bin Hamad al-Khalifa from KHK Racing Limited. Um, Bahraini-based operation, the yellow and black silks Eldar Elderov. Um, sported those at Royal Ascot this year to victory. Uh, Oliver St Lawrence has been um, responsible for much of the bloodstock that is racing in, in Europe for, for KHK as well as other Bahraini interests and joins me now. Now Sheikh Khaled Oliver has got quite an interesting backstory, hasn't he? Uh, uh,
5: yes, I mean he's coming with a big splash in the last few years and um, seems to be really enjoying himself.
0: But uh, am I am I not right in thinking that he's he's Bahrain's principal? Um, exponent of martial arts. Am I? Am I? Am I not right there?
5: Yes. Um, he certainly. He certainly um, is is big into his martial arts. He certainly used to do it himself, um, and I think still does do it himself. And um, um, Elder Elder Arov, whose name I can never quite say, um, is a person and is a is a um, martial arts uh, champion, I believe, and uh, is part of one of Shakespeare's uh, teams.
0: Now, what we really want to know is—is is he applying himself to the the, the, the study and um, business of horse racing as passionately and as enthusiastically as he as he has done with MMA?
5: I, th- I think he is. He's 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 really um, trying to to build himself um, a good portfolio of horses. He'd love to make himself a stallion like everyone would would, and um, he's, he's enthusiastic to you know, for to grow this into you know not something enormous, but something manageable that's fun and um, can you know have some success on across the, the big stage.
0: Success on a big stage comes no better than than Royal Ascot. So that victory for Elder Eldarov must have been hugely satisfying for you, but it wasn't the only Bahraini success at Royal Ascot. Um Bradsell was acquired just before the, the meeting and they both won. How how significant do you think this was for for Bahraini involvement in Britain?
5: I, I think, well, we'll see you in time, but both the brothers. I mean, Brad sells owned by Sheikh Khaled's brother, Sheikh Nasser, under his victorious racing banner. And, you know, both had come over. They were in at Ascot for the whole of the week. Um, and they were, you know, really keen to take, taste some Ascot success. Sheikh Nasser's had it before with De Gea in the Albany about three years ago. Um, and they, you know, the amount of money they've been putting in, um, you know, they wanted to have some success and to be able to deliver for them was very satisfying and they certainly got a lot of enjoyment out of it.
0: And what are the plans for these horses now?
5: Um, Brad Sell, I think we're going to aim at the, at the Phoenix Stakes in Ireland. Um, I think that'll be his next target. And the Elder Elder, are, we're a little bit more up in the air exactly what we're going to do. Um, we're going to leave him in a Group One in France next week and see what that looks like. Um, we're probably going to try and keep him to a mile and a half for the moment, um, or bring him back to a mile and a half. We think he's got potential at that distance, um, and um, we'll see. And, and the Saint Ledger will definitely be on the on the uh, you know under consideration later in the season. But I think we'll get to try him over a mile and a half next.
0: And how busy do you anticipate you being at the at the Yelling Sales this autumn on on behalf of, of these owners?
5: Um, well, I haven't had that conversation at all with them, um, but I, I'd like to think that having had some Asket success and things, that they will be back for back for more. They certainly seem very keen to um, you know to continue their involvement. So um, hopefully, yes, we'll be as active as we have been in the last few years.
1: Good luck to. KHK Racing. Our, our thanks to Oliver St Lawrence uh, for speaking on on their behalf, and uh, good luck to Elder Elderov who runs in tonight's Grand Prix de Paris. Uh, okay, to Australia now, isn't
0: it? I know we're in the middle of summer here in the UK, but it won't be long till we're turning our thoughts to the big. Uh, autumn festivals or spring if you're in the southern hemisphere which means that we start focusing on the Melbourne Cup, the Melbourne Cup Carnival, everything that Victoria has to offer at that time of the year and I'm very pleased to welcome into the show Paul Bloodworth who's the International and Racing Operations GM for for Racing Victoria Uh, and Paul you've been spending a little bit of time here in in Europe, what have you yielded and what have you been hoping to achieve?
3: Yeah thanks for having me on Nick, Uh, look it's been a really productive trip so far uh, it's, I'm coming to the end of it now, but we've been at uh, we were at in Newmarket for the July festival, uh, and caught up with uh, most of the leading players uh, that had chances for Melbourne, and then in the last four days we've been in Ireland and talking to people like aiden O'Brien, and Joseph O'Brien, Willie Mullins, uh, Johnny Murtaugh, and a few others as well. So, uh, what I've gleaned so far is I feel like uh, there was some you know we had some very well documented changes to our veterinary requirements last year that created a lot of uh, consternation and, and uh, we got a lot of feedback on that. Uh, I feel like, you know, with the passing of time, uh, the attitudes from the European trainers seem to have softened a little bit towards coming to Melbourne, uh, which is great. Uh, we did make a significant change to our veterinary protocols this year by removing the compulsory bone scan or scintigraphy, as it's also known. Uh, and I think that's been well received by, by European trainers. So. As it stands, yeah, uh, after you know multiple discussions over over the last sort of ten days or so, uh, it's looking uh, looking very promising for this spring.
0: So you've taken away the scintigraphy scans, those compulsory bone scans, but there still are important tests that European trained horses will have to undertake before travelling, aren't there? Can you just just remind us what they are?
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, for an English trainer. Uh, You need pre-travel a compulsory MRI uh, that's then reviewed by a panel of experts that Racing Victoria has put together uh, from around the world, uh, experts in that field. Uh, And you also need to provide us, you know, the horse's veterinary history uh, and we will be sending uh, a vet to do trot-ups of the horse before they enter pre-export quarantine. Uh, And then when uh, the horse arrives in Australia, before they race, they need to have a standing CT scan uh, in the time that they finish their compulsory quarantine period and before they race. So um, that, you know, removes the, the requirement of the compulsory scintigraphy. We are still uh, retaining that if on a needs basis if, if for whatever reason our vets aren't happy with the horse's action when they first look at it or there's something on the CT scan uh, that they're concerned about. But from what I can gather from, from talking to our vets regularly, uh, that will be the exception to the rule from, from this point onwards. So hopefully that makes it a little bit easier for trainers to navigate our process and, and get the horses to Melbourne to compete for some great prize money.
0: And are there, are there some big names you can share with me? Are there names of horses that made you think, oh, hello, we're back on track here?
3: Well, look... There's A few trainers are still considering their options, like people like Charlie Appleby and Aidan O'Brien, who've clearly got massive strings and and lots of horses that would be suitable for Melbourne. And and in the discussions with Charlie and Aidan, they are still looking at what horses they might uh, be interested in. But a couple of horses that are are sort of very uh, firm in coming to to Melbourne are Simon Crissett's horse without a fight, who's strung together a couple of promising wins and, and just looks to have the right profile, for a horse to come to melbourne uh, and i think simon said publicly after his win at york on the weekend that that the melbourne cup was his main aim and so I, as i said i think he's a really promising horse and uh, may not have seen the best of him yet so it's a good time to come to melbourne and, and get a nice handicap in a race like the melbourne cup uh and a horse of james ferguson's called Doville legend uh who won the bar Rain at newmarket last week uh I was actually talking to James today about it, and uh, it seems to be that, that they are very keen to come to Melbourne and, and checking uh, flight details and, and what have you on quarantine dates. So so there's a couple of nice ones. We had a good discussion with Richard Hannon about Mojo Star, uh, who to me looks to be the perfect Melbourne cup horse, and Richard's considering his options there. Uh, and then, of course, we've got Joseph O'Brien, uh, who... You know, trains the, the defending Cox Plate champion and has got several other promising stays as well. And Joseph uh, will definitely be coming back and I'm very, very hopeful that State of Rest comes back to defend his Cox Plate uh, crown. But uh, there's still a little bit of water to go under that bridge and Joseph to work out what his plan at the end of the year is. But as we know, he's, he's got Australian owners now and uh, I think they're very keen to come back and win the Cox Plate again and emulate So You Think, uh, uh, who did that uh, a few years ago now. so. So there's just a few. Uh, we have invited uh, William Haggis's horse, Alan Kerr, for the Cox Plate this year. Uh, and I had a long chat to William at Newmarket last week, and he's, he's very interested in the offer, and uh, he's considering his options, and clearly he's a horse that would have plenty of options at the end of the year as well. So so that's just a little bit of a snapshot of, of some horses that seem to be um, seem to be very keen on coming to Melbourne this year.
1: Jonathan, all uh, I need from you now is to send us away with a tip, preferably a winning one, but no pressure.
2: Yeah, hopefully a winning one. I'm um, going to go with Peachy Carnahan, which is a brilliant name, in the 220 at Hamilton. Races off a £1 lower mark than when third at Doncaster last time, course and distance winner, and I think has an excellent chance.
1: Jonathan Harding, thanks ever so much. Uh, thanks to everyone at home for listening. And uh, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. That was Thursday, the 14th of July. Bye bye.
0: You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with FitzDares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.